0: You're listening to the E-Free Lethbridge Podcast. This morning, what what we're doing is we're going uh, to continue in the Great Commission series. Right now, what are we, week six? Week six of seven. So out of uh, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, I'll be focusing today on verse 20a teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Imagine if you will, that you work for a company whose president found it necessary to travel out of the country for an extended period of time abroad. So he says to you and the other trusted employees, he says, look, while I'm gone, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to write you some letters. Pay close attention to the business. I'll instruct you on what you should do from now until when I return. Everyone agrees. He leaves and he stays gone for a few years. During that time, he writes often, communicating his desires and concerns. Finally, he returns. He walks up to the front door of the company and immediately discovers that everything is a mess. The weeds have taken over the flower beds. The office windows are broken. The person at the front desk is sleeping. There's music coming from the offices really loudly. Three people are fighting in the lunchroom. And the business, instead of making a profit, has suffered a great loss. Without hesitation, he calls everyone together and with a frown, he asks, what happened? Didn't you get my letters? You say, oh yeah, sure, we got your letters. We even bound them in a book and some of us have memorized them. In fact, we have a letter study every single Sunday. Those were really great letters. So the president asks, what did you do about my instructions? I said, do? Well, nothing, but we read every one. When I tell you this story of Chuck dolls, does it really surprise you, the, the employee's reaction? It's probably not, after all, isn't there an expression that while the cat's away, the mice will play? When we consider the focus of the Great Commission that we're talking about today, verse 20a, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, it would be great if we had a natural proclivity to want to do this thing, to learn, to obey. But I propose that we are often beset by wanting to do our own thing. We live in a selfish and individualistic society It's not really shocking news to anyone I can imagine. Perhaps in Jesus' day when he spoke this commission, perhaps it was different, perhaps the the issue wasn't as prevalent back then. However, the very fact that this is a commission to 11 disciples and not 12 disciples reminds us of what happened to the 12th, Judas Iscariot, who chose to go his own way, betraying Jesus, giving him up to the cross. Because of selfish desires. And placing the idol of self above God. Not only is it a problem now. And in Jesus' time. But as far back as we have written scriptural records, We see the same problem besetting on humanity. Focusing on self is not a new phenomenon. The prophet Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? Is it not? In the book of Judges we, we read from cover to cover in this book the problems that, that can be happening to a people. When we look to put the God of culture and of self in a place where only God should be. Here's what it says in Judges chapter two verse 10 through 12 at the beginning of the book. It says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. At the end of the book it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Lord, as we begin today's message, let's pray. Let's pray with me right now. Lord, have mercy on your people who generation after generation suffer from the same besetting sin of turning to ourselves from what we should seek from God. Lord, may you have mercy on us. We are the people who need to be reminded of you, Lord, as we cannot truly say, that our hearts are completely clean when it comes to putting our desires over God's desires. Amen. When we do this, when we're deciding to go our own way, we are saying that we are preferring our own ideas to God's truth. We are preferring the satisfaction of doing one's own will to doing God's will. It is loving oneself more than it is loving God. Now the dethronement of God from his rightful place as Lord of one's life requires the enthronement of something else. And that is what is understood to be the enthronement of oneself. It is making yourself the king of kings and the Lord of your life. And we know that it is wrong. I propose that's why when we read the start of verse 20 in the Great Commission that the word obey manages to rankle our senses. When we think of someone telling us to obey, it's not usually a warm and fuzzy feeling that creeps into our bones. No, it's a bracing and a bristling against the apparent removal of some sort of freedom. So when we read this verse, we need to be clear about what it means. Does God aim to rule as a taskmaster with his command to obey? Does he? No, 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 he is loving, he is gracious, he is kind, and it is good. So it begs the question, why is this here? We must delve into this section of the Great Commission so that we understand the word obey in a way that illuminates why our Lord and Savior Jesus would have these words here at the penultimate conclusion of Matthew's gospel. Indeed, in the final recorded words of his ascension into heaven at the right hand of the Father. So what does this mean? Why would we do it? The word obey, in the context of this verse, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, verse 20a, appears in multiple translations of God's word. Whereas in other excellent translations, it says, observe. Well, that's quite a different word. Why does it say observe? We hear obey, and there's a reaction to push back against something that we are actively called into. But the word observe gives the impression of passive participation, it's akin to flipping through a magazine on a rainy day, or scrolling through social media on your phone. Or it could have the same passing impact of being called to raise your head slightly so you can watch your child go down the slide for the 10th time in a row as they shout, Watch me, look at me. It's passive. Looking deeper at the original text, the word is tero, which means to keep watch over, to guard, to preserve, to continue. It means observe and it demonstrates obedience. It is an active and present verb that compels us to join in. It is not passive watching, but active participation. It is not passive watching, active participation. The word observe takes on the meaning of the word obey and furthermore teaches us how to do it in its very word, the very reading of the word. In fact, we are discipled. When we read or or hear, obey, try not to see it in the ways that we have been shaped in our lives through the trying bad and sinful experiences with our fellow man. We try and see it in relation to the way our Lord and Savior would have us understand it. As an active and present verb that directs us to Christ. Through the observation and learning of Jesus and his way. We observe and obey by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 to two says it better than I can. This relational play between sight and action How we begin to participate in this Christian journey of sanctification in our life. It says, therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Church, we are called. We are called into a body of believers, into a universal church that proclaims, that proclaims our Trinitarian God. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as Lord of our lives. Lives which we lay down at the foot of the cross. We bear witness to in our baptism. We take this proclamation symbolized by our baptism and we run, we run as the author of Hebrews tell us, and let us run with, the, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. With focus, we observe, we obey who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He tells us first to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit in confession of the Trinity. The Godhead, three persons, one Spirit who is our Lord and Savior, Those who become disciples are to be baptized into the name of the Trinity. Then he tells them, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. We baptize into the faith as a proclamation, a witness to the church, to our family, to our friends, to the world of the justification in Christ that has already taken place. Justification, that's a big word. It simply means that we have been filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit when we have accepted God's free offer of grace and mercy for the forgiveness of sins and salvation. That's still a long definition. Let's break it down a little more. Justification, just as if I'd never sinned. Can anyone say it with me? Just as if I'd never sinned. Justification, there, you won't forget now. So we have this justification and it is a sign of both entrance into the Messiah's covenant community and a pledged submission to his lordship. So after the baptism, the things don't just stop. We don't say, oh well, that's, that's it then. We're good, no. Christ loves you. He loves you completely. He loves you just as you are right now in whatever state that you may be in. In whatever is happening, he loves you completely. And he loves you too much to leave you that way. We are sanctified in him, we are grown in him through our Christian life, the continual journeying and maturation in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and throughout our lives. This is the teaching, the obeying, The transformation of a life from what it was, dead to sin, to alive in Christ and made mature in his ways. We now become the students of Christ. As the 11 disciples were commissioned to spread the good news of Christ, they were able to do so because they had been completely immersed in his teaching, they witnessed his miracles. They had spent every single day with him, gaining an understanding as students following a teacher. They did this then. They did this then, they went out into the world. We're instructed of the same pattern here. Those who are disciples are not only to be baptized but to be taught. We need to do the same. Each and every day submitting to the authority and the lordship of Christ, the head of the church. There is great learning and understanding that we should undertake if we are his followers, we are to follow. We sit at Jesus' feet and pay attention to his words, his way, his love, his instruction, and his discipline. In the home of Martha, which we read of in Luke chapter 10, Jesus' friends, Martha and her sister Mary, were preparing a feast for Jesus and his disciples. Martha is rushing around getting things ready for everyone, as you would when that many unexpected guests show up. However, she is admonished, she is told off, she's corrected, she's disciplined by Jesus for the busyness. For the busyness. And Mary is commended, she is praised for sitting underneath his relational teaching. Mary is showing us here what it's like to be a disciple. I am thankful for the good resources um, that I have access to to guide me earnestly in the preparation of this message with the word of God, the church community, and prayer. Uh, one of those extra great uh, resources that, that I had access to is the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Commentary. And in it, I found this wonderful definition of a disciple. It says, to disciple a person to Christ is to bring them into the relational teaching taking his, of, uh, of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, 1129, let's have a look what that says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lonely in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He's not a task master, he loves us. Accepting what he says is true because he says it. And submitting to his requirements is right because he makes them. Disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. It is impossible to witness to the world about something you've never seen or experienced. These baptisms, what a joy it is to be able to have witnessed this today. They are a symbol of what has already been experienced. It is an outward expression of an invisible grace. The people getting baptized today and all followers of Christ have experienced God's free offer of salvation. We enter into a covenantal relationship with our savior who will never leave us or forsake us. As we turn from sin, we must turn from sin and declare that Jesus is Lord. We are all to sit under the Lord's teaching of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't get it from ourselves. We can't get it from ourselves. We seek good direction from the one with whom all authority came to save us. With this posture of immersive learning and our covenant community of faith in which we now belong, we can go. We can go into the world from where we are physically and in essence with our hearts crying out from where we are placed at this very moment because we have learned from our teacher. We have spent time with Jesus. We know him, we know his words, his power, his way, his love. We fight the things of the flesh that contend with us to put ourselves as Lord of our own lives and we keep hold of the rightful place of God who has all authority over his creation, over you and over me. How can we do this? Well, we have to know who God is. We have to know the good news, the gospel that saves this book. We we have to know the Bible. The Bible is the special revelation of God to us. We are to be students of God's way. In the words of the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon, he says there must be knowledge of God before there can be love of God. There must be knowledge of God before there can be love of God. There must be knowledge of divine things as they are revealed before there can be enjoyment of them. It says that we must try and make out as far as our finite minds can grasp what God means by his word to us. Otherwise, we may kiss the book and have no love for its contents. We may reverence the letter and have no devotion towards the Lord who speaks to us in these words. We are to be immersed in his ways as students, as his followers. Read the word. Start today. Do it this very afternoon. Start to read the Gospel of Matthew and find out what these 11 disciples were commissioned with at its very conclusion. They went into the world. What were they teaching? This is where what God wants us to know about him is kept. It's not a secret. It's complete. And it's patiently waiting for you. Pray. Pray, it means to converse with the Almighty like you believe in him. Talk to God privately and corporately. Pray for one another. Pray for all kinds of things. Pray that God may come and bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted because you believe that the promises he makes in his word are true. Speak it over one another. Pray until you pray, my friends, and live growing in his ways. I met a woman at the hospital um, not too long ago who inspired me to the point of tears because of the way that she was living out this very commission. I asked her permission if I could share what I encountered and she agreed. Although I will keep the details very sparse. She was an active woman, very fit and social who had suddenly become temporarily confined to a hospital bed. Unable to get up, likely for a few months, it was a tremendous reversal in her circumstances. And yet she told me of the ways that she had been witnessing of God to those around her. She was compelled in her spirit to go. She went out into the world, right from where she was, speaking of what she knew to be true of Christ. Oh boy, did she ever. When we read of God's word and spend time with him in prayer, meditating on him, his words, what he teaches us, his character, we cannot help but testify to others, teaching them in turn about our God. We proclaim God's love because we have been loved. We pray for healing because by his wounds we are healed. Are we not healed, church? We testify of his mercy because he is, has been, and will be merciful to us. We pray for peace because we have received the peace that passes understanding. We speak of transformation, our testimony of witness, because we have been transformed. We obey because Jesus obeyed the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus kept watch. He observed the will of God. He obeyed, placing himself under the authority of the Father as he spoke in prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Church, in conclusion, as a worship team comes, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you means that we have become students of God's way. And there is not a better way of doing that than spending time with God through the reading of the revelation of himself to us in the Holy Scriptures and by speaking to him in faith through prayer. Let your hearts be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and conviction, teaching and coming alongside, so that we are taught with our eyes fixed on Christ, shaped in the ways that He would have us grow. Let's pray. Almighty Father, Blessed Savior, Mighty Creator, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Teach us to obey your holy way. Lord, teach us your way in the wilderness. Teach us your way on the mountaintops. Teach us your way in all things in life, your holy path of salvation. Fill us with your ways that we may go into the world and proclaim your name above all, Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven and earth, the God who loves us and intercedes to save that we may have life and life everlasting with you, our Father. Amen. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.